150 years since the first shots were fired in the American Civil War, and what have we learned from it? I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, filmmaker and historian Ken Burns shares what he learned from filming his epic Civil War TV series. Lincoln, as a young man in Springfield, Illinois, said, Whence shall we expect the approach of danger? Shall some transatlantic giant step the earth and crush us at a blow? If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. We shall live through all time or die by suicide. And for Vicarious Adventures, Nancy Pearl brings us literary suggestions for armchair travels. And the more you read, the more eyes you see through, the more experiences that you share with other people, exactly like travel. Touring Civil War sites and losing yourself in great travel literature. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. You can travel anywhere you want when you immerse yourself in good literature. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, librarian Nancy Pearl shares some of her favorites for mystery and intrigue in exotic places. From Venice to Oz to the ends of the earth and once upon a time. Let's start today with a call to Ken Burns as the U.S. observes the 150th anniversary of the start of the Civil War. The years he spent researching his epic Civil War series for public television taught Ken Burns why it's important to learn from our own history, even as you visit the famous battlefield sites of the Civil War. Ken Burns' 1990 documentary about the war was the most-watched show in the history of public television. It sparked a dramatic surge in interest in the Civil War and in visits to Civil War sites. Ken Burns lives in New Hampshire, travels a lot, produces documentaries for PBS, Civil War, baseball, jazz, the war about World War II, Recently, National Parks. He's won a mantle full of Emmys. And Ken joins us today to talk about the American Civil War. Ken, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Rick. Great to be with you. You know, there's a lot of movies and documentaries and books on the Civil War. What what did you see that was needed? Uh, You put a lot of work into this. Did you want to contribute something that was different? I did. Uh, You know, I grew up very much... uh, I was, um, let's see, eight years old at the time of the centennial of the Civil War. And I remember that it went over my head. The Civil War was something we always talked about. I had a set of army men that I played with my brother that were Civil War blue and gray soldiers. But it seemed to me focused almost entirely on um, sort of regiments, guns, and armaments, and missed what I thought was the real, I've now come to call it, emotional archaeology of the war. And as I began my professional life many years later, working on films on the Brooklyn Bridge, on the Shakers, the Statue of Liberty, Huey Long, the American Congress, obviously very diverse subjects, that all of them had as a determining factor this thing called the Civil War looming over it. And it essentially compelled me to treat it in a way that I thought we could engage the the elements of my style, that is not just a third-person narrator, the voice of God, but a first-person voices reading the diaries and letters, newspaper accounts and military orders, that you would energetically explore the photographic record. And, of course, the Civil War is the first war to be lavishly and expansively photographed, that you could bring in period music, and that you could come to know the important military events. They're, they're central. They're the skeleton. But that you would also understand the stakes uh, for a country that had just started fourscore and five years before, with chattel slavery still on the books. We had proclaimed all men were created equal, but we were coming to this head-on collision over that because in the South, made up of nine million people out of the 31 or so million people in the United States in 1860, four million of them, or 45 percent, were African American who did not have a vote themselves, were counted as three-fifths of a human being, and were, of course, more importantly, living under chattel slavery, uh, something that is the complete opposite of the universal freedoms that Thomas Jefferson had articulated in our country, was now proudly trying to live up to. So the Civil War was this freight train barreling down my consciousness Hmm. that needed to be treated. So, like anybody our age, you know, we we grew up with the you know, stories of the Civil War and, uh, as you said, the, the soldiers with different colored uniforms, but you wanted to humanize it, basically. Yeah, and, you know, I, I basically wanted to find out what happens. I mean, we get, in our teaching, we shy away from military stuff for some reason that's no longer apparently 
fashionable. We're interested in the causes of the Civil War and its effects. And those are hugely important, of course, and I don't mean to undermine them at the expense of learning what actually took place. So I, I found myself knowing that, you know, Lee was a Southern general, Grant was North, and Sherman was North, I think, and, mm-hmm. and, and Stonewall Jackson was obviously South. But after that, the next echelon, I wasn't sure, so I wanted to find out who won the various battles that I'd heard of, like First Manassas and Second Manassas and Antietam and Gettysburg and Petersburg and Vicksburg, and know what happened in those battles, but also do it from a bottom-up as well as top-down version. That is to say, follow not only Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln and those generals north and south, but what was it like for the so-called ordinary person, what we'd say the grunt today, Mm -hmm. uh, in the line of battle, sacrificing his all, uh, for whatever cause propelled him to that moment. And that, to me, was what we tried to do in, in, in our series. It's interesting. When you think of our, our decade and you think of the impact YouTube has on just letting everybody share videos, back then in the 1860s, photographs were, were just as a exciting of a phenomenon, such a, a big improvement in people's ability to share the reality of their experience. It's really true. Uh, you know, Louis Daguerre publishes his first photograph, or makes his first photograph, not published it, in 1839. And by the mid-1850s, there are enough itinerant photographers in the United States that people are getting their photograph taken. And it's this amazing thing. It's democratizing. You know, you would only have a portrait if you could afford. You'd have to be upper middle class or rich Mm. to afford a painted portrait. Mm. But a photograph Mm. had a little bit more of a democratic feel to it. And it explodes at the time of the Civil War. And we believe more than a million images were taken with a country obsessed with knowing what was going on. And some of the images that come back are as gruesome and as ghastly as you'll ever see. Now, your wish to humanize the war and, and do this emotional archaeology it sort of dovetailed nicely with the uh, abundance of photographs that were available. It did. By the time uh, we started, uh, there are probably about 100 to 125,000 photographs. I think I've seen most of them. Yeah, I know that I, by hand, re-photographed with my movie camera more than 16,000 of them and used 3,000 of them in our series. So I'm pretty familiar with them, and that was the idea that they would tell the story. We wouldn't need paintings or cartoons or lithographs in much abundance, that we could actually try to communicate that, and a reality that we could, with complicated sound effects, bring Mm -hmm. alive. So even though there's not a single photograph of battle, uh, everything is taken before or after, we nonetheless tried our best to animate, in the most generous sense of that word, what was happening during the war. Ken, did you find that people who owned these photographs were pretty generous in uh, their willingness to share this with you, understanding what your motive was? Uh, Very much so, but I have to say right off the bat that most of the photographs, the lion's share of them, are in the public domain. Matthew Brady, the famous and celebrated photographer who was actually... Um, a photographer, but also the boss of many other photographers who were equally as uh, great artists, uh, went bankrupt after the Civil War, in part because a country's appetite for war photography fell off um, immensely. And it was the Library of Congress, the nascent Library of Congress, that bought his negatives, and they're all there, or some are in the National Archives and the Military College. So we found maybe 80% of our photographs just within huh. three or four sources that are owned by you and me and everyone listening. Now, you said the appetite for war photography fell off dramatically? It, it was so amazing that the glass plate negatives that they often used in that time um, were sold, and someone told me that in many cases they became replacement panes in greenhouse gardens huh. around the, the country, and that some, I think it's more apocryphal than anything, but it bears sometimes repeating these apocryphal stories, made their way into the faceplates of World War I gas masks. If the Civil War did anything, it ushered in modern warfare, which would find its next gruesome, grisly apotheosis in the First World War. What do you think about the fact that America has not hosted a, a war in 150 years when we make war decisions? It is a pretty interesting phenomenon, isn't it? And in fact, I'm drawn back to war all the time. I'm now working on a massive piece on the history of Vietnam. Uh, If you think about it, besides the Civil War, let's set that aside for one second. When the British burned the White House during the War of 1812, nothing happened on our land um, until 9-11. Wow. Pearl Harbor is, of course, a devastating attack on a territory of the United States, which is the most remote place on Earth. That is to say, Hawaii is farther from any other place than any other place on Earth. Lincoln, as a young man in Springfield, Illinois, 
attended a, a meeting of the Young Men's Lyceum, which I think is, we think of it as like a rotary or at least a speaking club. And there the topic was the threats to the United States. And he was asked as a young up-and-coming lawyer to address this. He wasn't even 29 years old. And he said, whence shall we expect the approach of danger? Shall some transatlantic giant step the earth and crush us at a blow? Then he answered his own question, never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa could not by force take a drink from the Ohio River or make a track in the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. We shall live through all time or die by suicide. I mean, this is the guy who would preside over the closest we ever came to near national suicide, the Civil War. But, you know, his words are pretty... It's true today. Um, uh, true today. It's prophetic. We are insulated by these two great oceans and two relatively benign neighbors, north and south, and that has afforded us, with the exception of the Civil War, of a bloodless history for the most part. Now, though many people talk about the extermination of Native Americans, and that is a huge blot on our history, but we're not talking about that many battles and consequential uh, fights in which we're, as Europe can speak of, of tens of millions of deaths. And when we think of the, the, the Civil War, it's, it's easy to under, underestimate how bloody it was. What, it, one in 50 Americans died? It was 2% of the population died. Just think about that's what amazing. that would mean now. If we're 300 million, 2% is, you Six know, million. you do the math. That's a magic number in terms of perishing in a and, war. And it wasn't limited to one spot. What was it? it was fought in thousands of different places. Just yeah, it was permeated. all over the place. And skirmishes and major battles, the greatest battle in the Western Hemisphere, Gettysburg, uh, the bloodiest day in American history, Antietam. Uh, these are places within an easy drive of our nation's capital. And it's hard to think now as the decades sort of peel off behind us and the, and the Civil War is so much of our rearview mirror, how consequential it was, not just in American history. Mm-hmm. It is the most important event in American history. More than the founding, more than the Depression, more than uh, the Second World War, certainly more than other events that have recently happened. But um, we don't really understand it, and that's what we set out to try to put our arms around some sense of coming to terms. I mean, if you think about it, Rick, before the series came out, the two biggest popular culture things about the Civil War were Birth of a Nation and Gone with the Wind, all of which turn it upside down and make a terrorist group, one of the heroes. That is to say, the Ku Klux Klan, the original American terrorist group, the heroes. So we've gotten it wrong. We've soft-pedaled the causes of the war, which is essentially slavery. Obviously, states' rights and other things are part of it, but slavery was the big, as someone said, the sleeping serpent that lay under the table during the Constitutional Convention, if not always on everyone's tongues, then on their minds. By phone from his home in New Hampshire, Ken Burns is our guest as we join in the commemoration of the start of the American Civil War 150 years ago, and as we still try to make sense of what divides and what unites us as a nation. You can share your thoughts and questions with us by email. It's radio at ricksteves.com. More in a moment on Travel with Rick Steves. Armchair Travel Ideas with Librarian Nancy Pearl are coming up in a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we continue our conversation with filmmaker Ken Burns about the Civil War. 
His epic documentary on the Civil War first aired on public television in 1990, and it remains one of the most watched programs ever on PBS. Many stations are rerunning it now as part of the Civil War anniversary, and it's available in a remastered DVD set. Ken is also partnering this year with Talk Tours on their Civil War and National Park trips. Uh, Ken, when you, when you think about your goal to humanize the Civil War for Americans 150 years later to properly appreciate it, in retrospect, what was your most powerful technique, your most effective technique to do this? I think without a doubt, besides obviously working with great writers and editors and co-producers and cinematographers, was the emphasis on the first-person voices and the mm. intimacy with which I re-photographed the still photographs. The combination of that, I think, helped take an event that had been sort of safely put in the past and everybody had superficial opinions but hadn't really dealt with it in a real sense and brought out the human story and the human drama. Most of history and why so many people hate it is its memorization, dry dates and facts right. and events that seem to us to have little meaning. And what we were looking for, as I said before, is an emotional archaeology that would be the glue that would sort of reassemble the shards of the past into something that could sit before us and we go, oh, yes, I recognize these people. When he writes a love letter home, this is the love I feel for my wife. This is the love I feel for my country, for my government, the love I feel for my family. These, these are the sacrifices we've been willing to make, I am willing to make. And all of a sudden, the distance, the gap, between the past and the present dissolved, I think, in a few moments. And it was, as William Faulkner once said, it's not, history is not was, but is. And we look for those moments where something is vivified, whether it's standing on a little round top with Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain uh, beating back a furious charge that might have determined the, the course of that battle, and then perhaps the Unionist self, whether it's with Lincoln crafting the extraordinary words, not that I quoted before as a young man, but also the House Divided speech, his first inaugural, when he appealed to the better angels of our nature and the mystic chords of memory, or the Gettysburg Address, the most famous speech in all of the English language, or his second inaugural, Malice Towards None, you know, Charity for All. Ken, you mentioned you it was the intimacy that you're able to, to film these old black-and-white stills, and that must relate to the, the beautiful pans and slow pushes that you innovated. Well, yeah, I think a lot of that is so often we treat these photographs like slideshows at arm's length, and we just flash it on the screen, and we get them off as quickly as possible as if we can't wait to get to the relief of newsreel stuff that moves. But, of course, there are no newsreels at the Civil War, so we had to live within the photographs and trust that they were a frozen moment of a much longer and larger reality that we could imagine through sound effects, through first-person voice, third-person narration, and the way we filmed it. So we would use the photograph the way a feature filmmaker would a master shot, seeing both mm -hmm. a long, a medium, a close, an extreme close-up, a tilt, a pan, a reveal, that is to say a zoom out, and some sorts of details, inserts they're sometimes called. And we did all of that and, and, and kind of tried to will the past alive, if you will. And that was the Ken Burns effect, right? Well, th this has now been uh, characterized by <laughs> Apple as the Ken Burns effect. And, and I think if you want to pan and zoom over photographs, uh, Apple has something for you. That's great. You know, when I think about the Civil War and so on, it, it's just got to be the ultimate family trip when you're raising your kids to appreciate, you know, the greatest American test. Mary in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, uh, emailed us, and she said, When I was young, a very long time ago, my mother would take us to Civil War sites all the time. Every time we moved, the first thing we'd do in our new town was to visit the nearest battlefield or cemetery. At the time, I thought it was kind of boring, but now I think of it as the best ways to learn history. I'm so grateful that our country has preserved these wonderful and important sites. I agree completely. It is so important, and so important that we see them together. It's, it's not just the sites. When we think about our national parks, it's not just standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon or on a little round top at Gettysburg and what we see, that's hugely important, but who we see them with. And so mm. many memories of, of people are formed in these out-of-the-ordinary experiences. I, I went to West Point with a film we made on the Second World War, and I was so stunned to find so many of the cadets, male and female, had been to Gettysburg with their parents after watching mm -hmm. my documentary and were sort of inspired to pursue the military career that serves us all uh, by what they'd seen and felt and learned holding their parents' hands, climbing mm. over the rocks of Little Round Top. And that's a quite extraordinary thing. 
you stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon and you're there and you see the rock that is exposed that's one point, you know, 1.7 billion years old and you think of how insignificant our own lives are, but then you look down at this bright, you know, apple of your own eye and you mm-hmm. just you realize that there's an intimacy to time as well as enormous immensity to it, as the historian mm-hmm. William Cronin says in our film. And I feel the same way about Gettysburg, and since it has a proximity, a you know, we, I know someone who knows someone who fought in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. That's that close to us. Wow. So uh, my grandfather knew his grandfather who fought in the Civil War, and so that's an amazing connection. I love living in the Northwest, but that's a disadvantage for us out here. We don't have any of that heritage uh, handy, so we have to make a point to travel for that. Ken Burns, uh, let's think about uh, some sightseeing ideas. This is a travel show after all. Uh, You've seen a lot of the Civil War sites. What are one of the best, like, visitor centers or museums that really teach well? It's so easy. I'd go to the nation's capital, you Mm -hmm. know, where essentially the war began. I mean, it didn't. It's down in Fort Sumter out in Charleston Harbor, but this is the sort of the HQ, at least for the Union. Mm-hmm. And so many things are within an easy drive. There's Harper's Ferry, where John Brown's raid took place. There's Antietam, the bloodiest day in American history in September of 1862. There's Gettysburg, which is not that much farther uh, in south-central uh, Pennsylvania, where the Gettysburg Address was also delivered. There's Ford's Theater, where... Lincoln's life came to a tragic end. There's Arlington National Cemetery, whose high house on the hill was Robert E. Lee's original house. And uh, the quartermaster general of of Washington, D.C., was so disturbed that um, he had run out of burial space, including his son, that he decided to plant some of the extra bodies in Robert E. Lee's front lawn so that he could never return Mm. to that house again. And it's now our most hallowed ground when we speak of Arlington National Cemetery, forgetting the great, unbelievably intimate and personal, wrenching story at the heart of its creation. Uh, There's the Lincoln Memorial. There's all these amazing things that happened. Lincoln's summer home. Uh, just north of town. I mean, there's this, so this, this is, is a place. So this is really, from a, I'm a tour guide, and from a tour guide's point of view, this is a beautiful sort of revelation. You go to Washington, D.C., which is right by the line between north and south, right? Exactly. And then within a couple hours' drive, you got uh, a good section of the most important sites to and see. And I haven't even gone west or south <laughs> for you. That is to the Shenandoah Valley, a hugely important strategic area. There was a little town of Winchester, still there, that changed hands 72 times during the Civil Whoa. War, or south a half an hour uh, to Manassas, where the first major battle of the Civil War was fought, or down to Richmond, only 100 miles away, and below Richmond to Petersburg, where the outlines of World War II and trench warfare uh, were being found. And if you're willing to go three, four hours away, you can get to Appomattox Courthouse, where it all ended. You know, the whole war, except for the Western Theater, meaning Tennessee and Georgia and Memphis and New Orleans, uh, is right there before your eyes. Ken, how many hours is your uh, Civil War documentary? It's 11 and a half. 11, so you could, like, take a week of intensive, uh, make your own mini-series with your family, get the DVDs, and then uh, as preparation for your trip, and then rent a car in Washington, D.C., and you could have quite an experience. We've got a lot of emails. Terry in San Antonio emailed us from Texas, and Terry writes, I visit the Antietam Battlefield in Harper's Ferry the first week in December each year. There are 25,000 luminaries, one for each casualty placed on the battlefield. That's the first week in December. Harper's Ferry is decorated with period actors, Christmas decorations, and so on. It's a must-see. I also recommend the Bavarian Inn at Shepherdstown in West Virginia. My buddies and I rode a live mule named Bess in a bar with Revolutionary War reenactors. What a great weekend. And who says history is boring? This is, <laughs> these are the trips of a lifetime that, that live with people. Antietam is one of the most moving places on Earth. It's still intimate. It's rural. It's a three-part battle in one day that's very easy to comprehend, even if you're not into military studies. Harper's Ferry is a restored town, and it's a park service site, as is Antietam and Gettysburg. And Shepherdstown is a beautiful little town in West Virginia. I've been to a number of times. All of these could be part of your itinerary and more. As I travel in Europe, there's a lot of very important historic battlefields that are beautifully presented from a, from a teaching point of view. In your assessment, what's the most evocative battlefield that is aided by the way it is presented by the uh, park rangers or whoever organized the, the site? Well, 
you know, it's hard to pick one because our park service is one of the greatest institutions. I mean, our film on the national parks was subtitled America's Best Idea. Yeah, without saying the best one, because I know you don't want to say that. Yeah, but what's a couple of good ones? You know, I love Vicksburg Mm -hmm. on the Mississippi, Mm -hmm. uh, in Mississippi. I like Gettysburg and Antietam tremendously. They have an intimacy, all of them, and, and the Shiloh battlefield in central Tennessee as well, all because you can get to them and, and sort of blot out the modern things. Mm-hmm. You can even sort of squint and the statuary and the interpretive mm-hmm. stuff disappears and you feel on a hot July day like you're at Gettysburg. You feel as the autumn leaves are crunching under your feet and you're walking through some corn near the Dunker Church at Antietam. Uh, you, can, you can sort of hear the, the shouts and the ghosts and echoes mm-hmm. of an almost inexpressibly wise past sort of rise up and and give real meaning and poignancy to what the word travel is. I think Mark Twain said travel was the greatest assault on the ordinary mind. You know, the greatest enemy of the ordinary mind. (laughs) Uh, And and Twain is always right. (laughs) uh, He's a good traveler. I always got a sense that he was a great traveler. A great traveler. And and one of his greatest books is, of course, a travel book um, about his Western adventures. But what he was saying is that when we travel, the kind of prisons that we weave for ourselves by staying put and assuming things always get jettisoned. I can't imagine what the founders of the National Geographic must be doing, turning over in their graves. The National Geographic Channel, one of their most popular programs, is locked up abroad with the notion that it's very easy if you travel to be imprisoned in other places. And I just thought, oh, my God, that's the exact opposite of what the National Geographic. We are there to be curious about the rest of the world and the rest of humanity around us and the events that have taken place. And it is our responsibility to get out from our narrow-mindedness and have these preconceptions shattered by reality that that the people in the north aren't as bad as you thought, the people in the south aren't as bad, or east or west, or black or white, or young or old, uh, rich or poor, and all of a sudden we're no longer making distinctions. We understand, as someone writing about the the uh, National Park said, we're all just Americans. And that's just within our borders, let alone the kind of bailiwick that you travel, which is our globe. Right. Is there a site that has a great photo archive right there in situ of that battle? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, because there are none of the actual battle, we would still be talking about a good collection of photographs. So of, was, but the art of photography was such that you just simply couldn't take photographs? The exposure when it, time was great, and that's one excuse, but ah. it's, it's dangerous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> People die in the middle of battle, as we know from the dramatic footage we were able to find. Uh, that's from interesting. The so you can get all the pictures you want of people after the battle nursing their wounds. But... Well, what we did is we took a kind of temporal poetic license that right. when we would show the dead on the battlefield, we do it in the midst of the battle so that we felt like we were in it. And in if it, we right. kept up the sound effects, then you gave you a sense of how terrifying it might be. And that's always the reason to talk about war, because human beings have this strange, funny little thing where they forget the cost of war after a few years and then are suddenly excited to go back to war. And I think if you remind people of what the human cost is, at least they begin to stop and say, is this worth it in in treasure and life, particularly human life, to do it? And then hopefully uh, calmer heads prevail and and we we only fight the necessary wars. Well, that's one good reason to travel in places that are recently war-torn is you get a sense that the next generation is shaking their heads thinking, what was in those people's minds? And Europe is a particularly (laughs) poignant example because you think of them as so cultured and sophisticated and grown up to the kind of, you know, pimply adolescence that we Americans have in the historical yeah. perspective. Yeah. But in <laughs> fact, uh, Europe is a, is a site of ravaging civil wars that, unlike ours, had very few civilian deaths in ours outside of yeah. the state of, of Kansas and Missouri, very few civilian deaths. Huh. Um, the European civil wars were all about wholesale slaughters of cities and towns and hamlets and villages and just the worst depravity of human behavior that you could imagine, sometimes all in the name of church or all in the name of state or all in the name of just conquest and acquisition. But, you know, we have been graced that the only thing that went over our land was the Civil War. That's a lot to be thankful for. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Ken Burns. It's the 150th anniversary of the start of the American Civil War, and Ken's groundbreaking documentary on the Civil War will be re-airing this year on PBS. Are there ways that the war is still being fought that, that you felt in, in your work? 
always. Uh, I think when you scratch the surface of American history, the great sub-theme is race. We still wrestle with it today. We have an African-American president, and we have a level of vitriol and rhetoric in our conversation that sometimes crosses the line, based not on the content of his character or policies, but on the color of his skin, the sort of exact opposite of what Dr. King wished for us all. Um, I think that in some ways the legacies and divisions uh, sometimes pop up. You can still go down to the South and they'll say, well, you're just a Yankee, Hmm. or some such assumptions that those people in the North might feel uh, about Southerners. And so I think Mm -hmm. that the Civil War is a great teaching tool, not only for Hmm. what took place 150 years ago, but for what's taking place now and about what our country's made of. What good was lost in the defeat of the South? Well, I think there was a way of life, a kind of uh, thing that's it's too often romanticized. I don't mean the chivalry. You know, Sir Walter Scott and uh, his world died in the Civil War. The aristocracy died in the Civil War. And for many people who believe in small-D democracy, um, that was an important change. I mean, the world was now inherited by middle-class chaps like Abraham Lincoln and uh, Sherman and Grant and not the aristocrat that a Robert E. Lee or a Jefferson Davis uh, represented. It's interesting that the war was almost immediately forgotten by the North. The South, because it had lost, nurtured its wounds, and in some ways the manifestations have been unpleasant, sometimes persistent racism. Uh But more often than not, the greatest literature in America has come out of the South and the tensions of all of those things. Mark Twain, uh, Faulkner, Eudora Welty, Walker Percy, Shelby Foote, all of these great writers are all trying to negotiate Mm. um, the, the fact of loss. And that is, of course, something that visits us all personally. But here it visited a whole region of a country, and it produced extraordinary outbursts of creativity that I don't think has diminished. 150 years later. Yes. Uh, Ken Burns, uh, this project of yours must have been successful beyond your wildest dreams. The first aired in 1990, the most watched program ever on PBS, coming back again in 2011. How has this project been most gratifying to you? I think in just the fact that here we are 21 years later and we're talking about it still. Uh, The effect has been so profound. I I can visit a battlefield and people will run up from their cars with dog-eared copies of our books or DVDs and say that each night in the motel as they tour the battle sites, they look at an episode and they're so stunned to find me there. And we have conversations that are not about celebrity or bold-faced names. They're about our ancestors, mine as well as his or hers. And that's immensely satisfying. It means that we can have a broad reach but still remain with the intimacy of the conversation. Ken Burns, thank you so much for your commitment to help us Americans find out not only who we are but why. Best wishes. Thank you. That's very kind. You'll find more with Ken Burns online in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Up next, Nancy Pearl suggests her favorite books and authors to stir up the wanderlust in any armchair traveler. We're at 877-333-RICK. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hoi, ik ben Philippe Samijn, ik ben van België en ik reis met Rick Steves. I'm Philip from Belgium and I travel with Rick Steves. Ik reis met Rick Steves. It's funny, I travel a lot and don't read a lot of books. And I'm joined by somebody who reads a lot and doesn't do a lot of travel. And we're both enthusiasts about the world. And armchair travel is the specialty of Nancy Pearl. I guess if America has what you might call a rock star librarian, it's Nancy. She's written the very, very popular Book Lust series. It's sold over 200,000 copies. She's a regular commentator on NPR's Morning Edition. She's got master's degrees in library science and history. And her new book is Book Lust to Go, all about travel books. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. 
Isn't that interesting that you're just so enthusiastic about travel books and they're kind of a blessing because you don't have to get on an airplane? I travel a lot for work. So, you know, I've been to places like Auckland and Tallinn, Estonia, and all around Estonia actually was a wonderful trip. But it's always been for work. And so pleasure travel has always been found within the pages of a book. So talk about traveling without leaving home via wonderful books. It's the best way to do it. I, You know, I did a program at the Mid-Manhattan Library in New York a few weeks ago, and at the end of the program, where I talked about not being a traveler and yet feeling that I'm very qualified to write a book called Book Lusto because of all the books I've read, a man in the front row said, I thought you'd bring slides to show all the places. And I said, Oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry, but I've never been to any of these places. (laughs) You know, it just occurred to me, I had a similar experience with Al Stewart, you know, the guy that, uh, you're the cat, you know, the pop singer? Yes. And I had dinner with him, and I've just loved his books because he's this traveling historian and everything, and I've listened to his lyrics, and I love his lyrics, and I just, I can picture him in the, in the market in Marrakesh writing these things down. So I got together and asked him, so what was it like? How did he write? And he says, I've never traveled to any of these places. <laughs> I, I just read books. He loves books, and he travels. Yes, yes. I, I think that reading and reading about different countries. I'm a librarian, and one of the things, one of the questions we always got was, I'm going to Venice. What can I read? I don't really want a travel guide necessarily. I have that. But what can I read that will give me a sense of the thereness of the place? I mean, how can you go to Venice and not read the Donna Leone mysteries? And so, I mean, they're fabulous. That's how I first learned what Prosecco was, because the main character, Guido Brunetti, He drinks Prosecco. He drinks Grappa. There's even a new book out of his recipes. And I thought, I I don't know if I'll ever go to Venice, but I've been there. You've been there, yeah. Well, I mean, somebody could say, I'm not going to Venice. What book should I read? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. you, You can be there. Well, for me, the planning stage of a trip, because I'm all about practical travel tips for people who are actually going to go through all the headaches yes. of going there, the practical part of it, or, or the, the planning part of it, can sort of be an extension of the travel experience. You're sort of psychologically and mentally there. You're getting background material, so when you do get there, it's much more vivid and right. magic. And, and these are the kind of people you and librarians all over the country are helping out right. when we give that little insight. Yes. But see, it's all that traveling, that getting ready beforehand, just what you were talking about, that you find is an extension of the travel. It's that that makes me, I immediately, as soon as you started talking, my stomach got nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, I can't, I, I no. So nope. may, maybe if you do that preparation thing well <laughs> enough, you don't have to do the trip. Enough, right. And that's where Nancy Pearl comes in with her book lust to go. Nancy, can a book give you culture shock? I Yes. Um, there's a new book about North Korea by a woman named Barbara Demick called No Ordinary Lives. I think that's what it's called. And she talks about life in North Korea. She interviewed five people who had escaped from North Korea over the Tumen River and come to China, and she interviewed them in China. And they talked about what life was like in North Korea. I mean, that was the most kind of radical kind of culture shock. So you were caught up in that in that hellish kind of situation. Yes, yes. Just by and reading the book, thankfully yes. you didn't have to go there right. to learn that. Yeah, and most of us will never get to go to right. North Korea, but yeah. Gus Lee wrote a wonderful mystery set in North Korea. I, I mean, there's just so much that's... Well, there's um, a society that's essentially closed to tourists, but it's worth traveling to via books. Yes. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're enjoying armchair travel with uh, the the queen of, of armchair travel, and that would be the librarian Nancy Pearl. And Nancy's new book is called Book Lust to Go. I mean, you've written several book lust right. books, and this one is featuring travel books. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Gail's on the phone in Albany, Oregon. Hey, Gail, thanks for your call. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, yes, I'm excited to get a chance to talk to Nancy as uh, we rushed out and got her book um, because that's exactly what I'm always looking for is some good recommendations of books to read uh, before I travel or after I travel someplace and I want I don't want a travel log I don't want a a guidebook I want a good fiction Uh book that brings a place to life and so um, we have been using your book now to uh, find some books for our next trip. Where are you going? Um, oh, our next trip uh, will be back to Brazil where my son lives. And 
So I'm, I'm looking for some ideas. Some some areas you don't have covered as well as, right. as others. Yeah. Right. There's a, like a page count limit and a word count limit. Oh, okay. <laughs> and also, but you know what book I would recommend about South America is a book called The Saddest Pleasure by Moritz Thompson. T-H-O-M-S-E-N. And he's mentioned it. Um, that book is in Book Less to Go. Okay. And he joined the first class of Peace Corps volunteers, but he was older than the others. He was in his late 30s. When he left the Peace Corps, he bought a farm in Ecuador. And then as he got older, his health got not quite as um, good as it was. And so he gave up his farm, and he took one last trip around South America. Oh. And the title, The Saddest Pleasure, comes from something that Graham Greene, um, no slouch at travel himself, once uh-huh. wrote, which is that travel is the saddest pleasure. And I would love to interview Rick to see what he thinks of that <laughs> sentence. Travel is the saddest pleasure, because Thomas Jefferson wrote, travel makes a person wiser if less happy. Yeah. Oh. And I think there's a lot to that, and we could do a whole interview on yes. that. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just sort of encouraging you to, to keep reading and helping the rest of us uh, find those books that bring a place alive. I did send in two ideas that, I, that I've read. Uh, one is The Colony of Unrequited... Love, uh, I think. Yes. Wayne Johnston, did uh-huh. you see that one? On my- I included that one in Book Lust or more oh, Book Lust in okay. one of the earlier books. And, and okay. actually, when I was writing Book Lust to Go, I d- decided because I could have written this book just taking armchair travel and history oh, okay. and things like that from the earlier books, but I didn't think that would be fair. So, okay. so I did not repeat myself. But The okay. Colony of Unrequited Love is a fabulous book about Newfoundland. Yeah, and the other one is called Easter Island, a novel which is, has a modern-day researcher and somebody from, you know, 100 years ago, and they go back and forth between the two, and that's another uh-huh. really good book that I liked a lot. All right. Hey, Gail in Albany, okay. Oregon, thanks for your call. Thank you. And, Thanks, and, Gail. Uh, happy armchair travel. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that, Nancy. Um, of course, you, you wrote Book Lust and then more Book Lust, right? And <laughs> right. you probably just accidentally had a lot of travel books that made the cut for that. And then you had to decide those would be probably the books that came to mind first right. as the best travel books. Yes. So would you actually do Book Lust to Go without those yes, ones that made the first that cut? that was the hardest part and the most interesting part. Book Lust and more Book Lust were books that that pretty much I had read and loved. Mm. I like to joke and say 3,000 of my all-time favorite books, <laughs> but they really are. But for Book Lust to Go, I spent a lot of time wandering through libraries and bookstores, read travel essays, read histories. I wanted accessible books, whether or not the places were common armchair travel places. Like somebody, somebody said, why did you do Albania? Who would go to Albania for a mm. trip? And I said, well, I had to do Albania. One of my all-time favorite books is The Unexpected Mrs. Polifax. And she volunteers to be a spy. And by accident, she is sent to Albania or taken to Albania. Well, that's a beautiful thing about this list. It doesn't matter what the visa requirements are, that's how right. far you have to travel there. It's all accessible. It it's is. Just within the 268 pages that your publisher gave you yes. for this project. The 65,000 words, <laughs> for better a, or worse, there they are. Well, sometimes less is more, I guess, in yes. book publishing, so you had to uh, limit it to that. You know, it occurs to me as a traveler and, and a citizen of, of, of this country that fear is in a lot of people's minds lately. There's a lot of fear rattling around in our society. I really feel like fear is for people who don't get out very much. And one reason I'm trying to inspire people to travel is because I think you realize, hey, the flip side of fear is understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, if all you do is, you know, watch hysterical, if it bleeds, it leads news. Right. It's a scary world. Right. How does reading? Uh, I think work into reading that? is exactly the same. I'm I'm struck by that similarity, because I think it's through reading that you understand a larger portion of the world than where you are. And the more you read, the more eyes you see through, the more experiences that you share with other people, exactly like travel. It's because of that that armchair travel, that novels set in different places, that we're seeing so many mysteries being translated now coming from other countries. I think they bring you the same overcoming of yourself. In fact, there's a travel writer named Michael Musha whose new book is called Between Terror and Tourism. 
Isn't wow. that great? It's a collection of his experiences. What's, what's the author in the name of the book? The author is Michael Mushaw, M-E-W-S-H-A-W, uh-huh. and the book is called Between Terror and Tourism. Wow, that sounds fascinating. It is. It is. And he gets himself into some very hot spots. Yeah. So reading doesn't replace the experience. It can augment the experience or give you experiences you couldn't have otherwise. When it comes to writing travel, you can have just your basic travel log. You could have something with a great plot. And there's that whole value and dimension of of creating a wonderful sense of place. Yeah. The books that I chose, especially the fiction that I chose, is all books that have that thereness that when you read those books, you feel like you know what that place is. Um, Hong Kong is a common place that I understand because of the books that I've read. You know, the handover from the British back to the Chinese, what that period was like. How it felt. How it felt. Vietnam, another... Oh, can you imagine? Yes. The sense of, more than the sense of place, the sense of time in place or, or something yes. like that. Yeah, and I was struck when I was writing the book by how whatever book I read, it was almost as though, and decided or not to, or decided not to include it in the book, really, geography is political. And when I call um, a section in Booklust to go Burma, I'm making a political statement. And that's something that I kind of knew that geography is political, but mm. I it didn't come home to me until I started reading all the books that I would then include hmm. in the Spain section. It's very hard to find a book about Spain written since 1936 that does not refer in some way to the scars of the Spanish Civil War. Right. And with Chile, there's a wonderful book by Sarah Wheeler called Travels in a Thin Country. And that is the one book about Chile that I've read ever that doesn't talk about Pinochet. You know, I could see you hanging out in some sort of evening social scene with a bunch of really experienced world travelers, and nobody would even know that you you, you got all your travel know. through books. Now, right. A minute ago, you said when you chose to use the word Burma, it yes. was a political statement. Right. Of course, instead of Myanmar, which might right. be more politically correct. Yes. Why? What, what statement were you making? I, I was making a statement. Well, because it's a military junta who's running Myanmar. So um, mm-hmm. I think that that is... Um, oh, so it's more in uh, solidarity with the people to say I, Burma? I think if for for me, it's both in solidarity with the authors whose books I'm talking about okay. and um, recommending. Um, there's a wonderful writer named Emma Larkin who wrote Going After George Orwell in Burma, which is both a biography of the country and a biography of the writer, which is just wonderful. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Nancy Pearl. She's a librarian at large with the King County Library System in Seattle, and you've probably followed her recommendations on other public radio shows over the years. Her own latest book is called Booklust to Go, recommended reading for travelers, vagabonds, and dreamers. Nancy, when you're talking about a sense of place and how critical that is really for the, the best travel experience from a book, do you find that's easier to get in a fiction book or a nonfiction book? I think that almost entirely depends on the writer. I think that there's some wonderful nonfiction where you feel as though you're there. Um, I think Paul Theroux's um, The Great Railway Bazaar was one of those books, The Old Patagonian Express. The book of his, though, that gave me the best sense of Africa, I think, is called Dark Star Safari, Mm. where he goes back to Africa, where he had been in the Peace Corps and then taught at the University of Uganda. And um, I just talked to him about that oh, book. Oh, you did? And it was fascinating, and he made such a strong point. You don't fly from capital to capital. you got to go overland yes. across the borders yes. and get out into the bush. Yes. And he was traveling like some backpacking student oh, all across Africa. And he went there for his 60th birthday, so yeah. he was not a kid. Now, that is cool. Yes. <laughs> and it's, that book is so, it's just so beautifully written. I kept writing down, I included several quotes from it because I couldn't Dark Star Safari. Dark Star Safari. Nancy, I was just thinking, we always talk about sense of place, but you've also got sense of time. And you've got contemporary writers like Paul Theroux. And then we've got writers from centuries past that take us to a place and to a time. Yes. Who does that well? Oh, um, Ibn Buttada, or Batuta, right. um, I think does that. And there's a wonderful book in Booklust to Go. It's called Travels with a Tangerine. 
because he was from Tangiers, and he followed um, the first half of Ibn Battuta's travels. Somebody took me to his home. There's a tiny little mosque and museum for him in Tangier. Yes. Oh, really? Just last oh. year. And it was a big deal for that Arab part of the world, yes. or Islam. And yes. I hadn't heard of this man. Oh, Very, see? I see, I need to be exposed. I need to do a little traveling. <laughs> I, need, I need to do some reader's advisory work with you. <laughs> okay, we'll have to meet about that. Now, you say, in your book, you say, reading saved your life. How so? It's about your childhood. Yeah, I, you know, I grew up in a family that was not a particularly um, safe place to be for me. And so I spent all my time at my branch library in Detroit, Michigan. And it was those librarians who really were my first travel guides who opened up the world for me, who showed me what was available outside my very narrow world. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you ever wonder how gratified they would be to see what you're doing now with your work? That's one of the things that I most wish, is that they would know that and would know how how grateful I am to them. Whether it's a piano teacher or a history teacher or a Sunday school teacher or a librarian, people right. plant these little seeds, rescue kids from difficult home lives, yes, and then for the rest of their lives, they're benefiting from that. Yes, I'm speaking with Nancy Pearl. Her new book is Book Less to Go. You know, I may have a well-worn passport cluttered with all sorts of smudgy stamps, but I think you've likely traveled as much as anyone I know. This has been quite an inspirational talk. Take me to a favorite place that you feel like you've been to, but it was only with the help of a book. Chile. Sarah Wheeler's Travels in a Thin Country. Because she is such an adventurous traveler and that because she stays at youth hostels and if somebody says, oh, let's go off into the interior, she'll go with them. And because she goes from north to south, and she's a fabulous writer. And her book about Chile, her book about Antarctica, and her forthcoming book about the Arctic are just all wonderful. Nancy Pearl, book less to go. Thank you for all the, the travel tips. Thank you. Going to China Or maybe Siam Say I want to see for my Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for technical help to Andrew Wakeling, Robin Cronin, and Jonathan Lee. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. The conversation continues online in the radio section of ricksteves.com. That's where you can post your travel reports, listen to archives of past shows, and search them by topic or date. We've also organized interviews from past shows into country-specific playlists for your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links on our website or as an app at iTunes. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.